Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees it is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's the word from the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen, amen. Hey, Collective, how are we feeling tonight? We feeling all right? Feeling good? Hey, you could have been a lot of places. You could have been at Balloon Fiesta, but you chose a better place to be at Collective Young Adults. So I'm excited you guys are here. Anybody going to Balloon Fiesta this week? Yeah, okay. Anybody watching the balloons, but they're not spending $5,000 to go see them? Yes, okay, same thing, same difference. But me and Sky will be seeing the balloons tomorrow morning, so pray for your boy at 4 a.m. if uh, you think of me. But uh, as Jalen read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. I just want to welcome you. I see a few new faces tonight. I just want to welcome you to Collective Young Adults. This is a gathering that uh, my wife Sky, alongside wonderful Josh and Alondra, have been running for about three years now alongside our wonderful team. And the real purpose of this gathering isn't to have some songs and then a TED talk about the Bible, but to really foundation ourselves and what it looks like as young adults in the city of Albuquerque to look more like Jesus. And so we've been in a series titled In This House. And the premise of this series is how do we begin to live set apart and different in a world that is not different? And the, the reasoning for the title in this house, I realized I didn't explain this last week. We jumped in last week. But the title for this series is all orientated around when you come into a home, there's rules and expectations for that home. There's expectations on how to thrive and do well in that home. How many of you growing up, you had rules in your house, and then when you went to a friend's house, they had different rules. Like you heard your, mom, like you heard your friend's mom talking to them, and then you heard them talking back. You're like, boy, if I was in your house talking like that in my house, I would not exist right now, okay? Like in different homes, there was different expectations, and Jesus has different expectations for his followers than those who may not follow him. And so we want to walk through those expectations. We want to walk through what does it look like to be discipled and to follow Jesus full-heartedly. And we want to do this so that we can look more like him. Not to look more like the world, not to look more like culture, but that we're taking our cues on who we're following from the person we're following. Make sense? And so we're, we're in this series, In This House. And... In going through this series, last week I talked about how do we step out of hesitant faith, hesitant discipleship, and how do we step into wholehearted discipleship? There's a lot of lukewarmness that we see in our culture when it comes to following Jesus, and we talked through that. And I find that when following Jesus, there's this moment where we begin to follow him. It was the point of salvation. It was, it was maybe we went forward for an altar call. Maybe we raised our hand during a service. Maybe we were listening to a podcast and felt compelled to claim that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm no longer ruling my life. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we do really well in that area. We do really well to make converts. We do really well to bring people to Jesus. 
But here's the issue. When, we, when initially people come to Jesus, we tell them something. And, and, and easily this is what we tell them. Hey, you're gone from your old way of life, and now you can be in heaven with Jesus. Now you're ready to die. And then that's pretty much what we tell people. But that leaves a really big question about, I don't know, that, that phase between that moment of salvation and dying. Some call it life, okay? We don't really know what to do with that middle section. People are ready to die. People are ready to go to heaven. People are ready to meet Jesus and be with him. Great. That's good. But then there seems to be this little thing called life. We begin to ask the questions, well, what, what do I do now? What do I do with my life now that I've given it to Jesus, that I've had this moment? And then we continue maybe as Christians or people who come alongside those who come to faith. And we, 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 we're ready to answer their question. We say, yeah, get in community, read the Bible, pray, go to church. That's what you do. And if you do the math on how many hours a week each person has, 24 hours in a day, you minus the three hours of sleep you probably get a night, uh, you minus the 40 hours playing video games or whatever you do with your time, you minus the 40 hours of work, the 40 hours of school, and then you're left with something around like 30 or 46 hours of a week. And if the average sermon is 30 to 45 minutes, average church service is an hour and a half, if the average connect group or community group is an hour to two hours, some of y'all are meeting for like five, six hours, more glory to you, I guess. But if this is what the week composes of, then the rest of that is left to the praying thing and the Bible reading thing. And you begin to ask the question of what do I actually do with this time that I'm given? The extra spare time for some of us is more, some of us is less. What do I do with that time in following Jesus? How do I practically follow Jesus? What do I do with my time? What do I do with my life? And as I mentioned last week, what I know about this gathering, what I know about us as young adults, is that we're no spring chickens when it comes to faith, okay? I just, I just put that in there just to say we're no spring chickens because I love that phrase for some reason. But, but I assume and I'm at the conclusion of for many of us, we've been following Jesus for some time, we're not necessarily new to faith. We're, we've been maybe raised in a church. We're aware of this context of faith. We're aware of what it means to follow Jesus. And we vaguely understand some extent of this conversation. What does it mean to be a disciple to Jesus? Because Jesus called his followers to make disciples. And if you came to know Jesus, that was at the benefit of somebody who wanted to make a disciple out of you to Jesus. And the danger we face as attempting to follow Jesus and feeling a little bit confused, feeling a little frustrated, feeling like things aren't really working out like we thought they would, that filling our week with these things doesn't seem to be curbing the old life that we thought we left behind, what we can begin to do is we can begin to take what the world does and what tradition may say and insert that into what it means to follow Jesus, more so than actually following Jesus and his words. I can tell that the way many of us feel about faith is the same way I feel about surfing, okay? Let me explain. I'm originally not from New Mexico. I'm originally from California. And when you say you're from California as a blonde human, everybody asks you the same question, did you ever surf? And I have to tell them a resounding and disappointing, no, I live like three hours from the beach and the water was really cold anyway. I did not grow up surfing. Some people have this perception that everybody in California lives in Hollywood, but there's a lot more of that state, unfortunately. Um, and I did not grow up surfing. 
And so my whole life, I didn't grow up surfing, never surfed in my life. But a year ago, when I was back in California, I actually got the chance to surf with a friend. And I'm interested in doing sports that almost make me die. I don't know. Maybe I need to get my brain checked out. I love snowboarding. I love skateboarding. Okay. Any snowboarders in the house? Anybody? Any skiers? Anybody? That's okay. We, we won't be friends ever, but that's all right. Um, I love these kind of sports. Some people call them action sports. I call them just like get me close to death sports. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm just interested in this kind of thing. I can't do any, like sport ball things, okay? I can't dribble basketball. Joshua knows this. Like I can never shoot a free throw in my life. That's not me. But in 10 sports, I'm, I'm game. So my friend told me, hey, we can go surfing. I know you wanted to surf. So I said, okay, um, how hard can it be? Let's do it. So we rent a few boards and we uh, go to the beach. And I'm like, so what do you do anyway? He's like, oh, I don't know. You just like paddle. And then you turn around when the wave's coming and you just stand up. I'm like, oh, easy. So we get out there and we're about like five minutes in the water and the first wave comes. And I'm like, whoa, this, this water is like kind of strong. Like, I don't know, this, this, is a little, this is a little intense for me. And I'm getting over, I'm paddling out. And then I just get swept ashore like five miles, it feels like, onto shore from this little tumbling wave. And I said, maybe this isn't as easy as I thought it would be. An hour and a half later... I have bloody elbows. I've been, like, casted under the water like I'm in a washing machine for 30 minutes. I said to myself, this is not fun. This is not a good time. Why is everybody doing this? And and then there's, like, five-year-olds jumping in the water, paddling out, and just catching these giant waves. I literally was in the water. And here's the thing about surfing, why it's so scary and why I hate it now, okay? Um, The water keeps you there as long as it wants, okay? You don't get to say, okay, I'm done. I don't want to be in the water anymore. You're like a mile out from shore just getting tumbled by these waves. It's a freaking nightmare, my friends, okay? So if you ever go surfing, um, just take my advice. Don't do it, okay? Don't go surfing. But when I was surfing, I I felt so frustrated because no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I paddled, I felt so weak. I felt like the waves were too big for me every single time. I just felt defeated. And when you're under that water... And by the time you get back up, you barely have enough oxygen to get back up again. The next wave is incoming, and it feels like you're literally going to drown. And if I was to assess how many of us feel about our faith, I'd say it's the same way you may feel, I may feel about surfing. The same way I feel about surfing is that it's pretty much just like a drowning competition if I'm going to go do it. And for you and your faith, you feel like no matter what comes your way, what circumstances, what temptations, what difficulties, that you just can't keep your head above water. That no matter how hard you try, that no matter what you do, you keep suffering, ending up in this vicious cycle at the mercy of the circumstances of your life. And I have to tell you tonight, my friends, with that being the case, I want to challenge you with this. You don't have to drown, <laughs> okay? You don't have to drown. In looking at your life and thinking of the circumstances that you're facing, many burdens that we're carrying into this room tonight, the unspoken things that our friends sitting next to us, no matter how much we smile, no matter how good our life seems, we, we, we feel like we're drowning. We feel like we can't even tread water. And so when we look at faith, we, we seem to feel like we just never measure up. Well, let me encourage you tonight that my personal conviction is that Jesus not only serves as Savior and King, the the Redeemer for humanity, the propitiation for for sins, but he serves as an example for those who desire to follow him. This is what Jesus means when he says, take up my yoke and follow me. And when I look at Jesus' life, and if I feel like I'm drowning, I want to look at what Jesus did. I want to mirror his rhythms and his lifestyle. 
Because what the world is doing, what the world is telling me to do, what culture at large is telling me to do, doesn't really feel like it's working. So I want to look to the words of Jesus. I want to look to the life of Jesus. And I imagine you want to do that as well, hence why you're here, or your friend tricked you and said, there's people there, and there's nothing to do in Albuquerque, so come with me, right? Like, I imagine many of us desire or are aware of Jesus. And when I look at the life of Jesus, I have to admit, he prayed a lot. All Jesus seemed to do was heal some people, hang out with kids, eat a lot, have dinner a lot more, and then go pray. And he literally was like, I'm tired. I'm going to go sneak away. And he went to go pray often. Matthew and John often give many accounts of this. And they use a familiar phrase over and over and over. And if we find Jesus in the Gospels sneaking off from crowds and going to what is called a solitary place. We get a look behind the curtain of this lifestyle that Jesus implemented in his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's doing what we've assumed up until this point reading the gospel that he's always been doing. He's been in conversation with the Father. He takes his disciples with him, and an hour, maybe even 15 minutes into it, he finds them asleep. And he goes to them, he says, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? And we know he's talking about prayer because he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer was important to Jesus. And if I want to look more like Jesus, I believe it should be important for me. And the rest goes for us. But here's the main tension about prayer. It can seem kind of strange and obscure to us, especially in an extremely secularized culture that we're in. And we can ask three main questions. What do we do with prayer? What's the point of prayer? And where does it operate within the context of our lives? Do I just pray the Lord's Prayer every time before I go to sleep? Do I just pray for the meal? Do I just pray for things when I think of them? Do I pray when I'm driving and close my eyes and just pray in faith? Some of you all drive like that. There, there, these are some questions I hope to alleviate tonight. Because obviously, I'm not insane for saying Jesus prayed a lot. And if I want to look more like Jesus, I should probably pray. But the question arises of what do we do with it? And so let's start by reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And let's start in verse 5 where it says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When reading this passage and breaking it apart this week, I actually realized that each warning that Jesus gives in this little context, this little conversation with his disciples, actually aligns perfectly with what he talks about in the Lord's Prayer, what he introduces, what Jalen read tonight. In each portion prior to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives a warning, but then he gives an example in the Lord's Prayer. And so each section I'm going to accompany with a different section of the Lord's Prayer and how it plays out in our life. And I would say the first section of the Lord's Prayer of when he says, when you pray, pray like this, it starts in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm unsure if you've had a week ever in your life where it feels like nothing is going right. I, I don't know if maybe that's been your life up until this point. I don't know if that feels like this month so far for you. Uh, but if I'm being honest and real tonight, I have to say this is one of those weeks for me. I don't know what the heck happened to all the devices, all the things in my home. I don't know if the spirit of Satan personally entered into these things or not. I have no idea. 
for some reason, starting Monday this week, every single item from both my cars to my dryer to different things just broke on me. It started with Monday, my car's fuel pump went out. Then Tuesday, my other car's radiator went out. And then Wednesday, my dryer decided to stop working. And then Friday, when I finally fixed my car and rolled into the parking lot, all the transmission fluid in my Subaru decided it wanted to be on the floor rather than in my engine. And I don't know a lot about cars, but that stuff has to stay in there, I guess. I don't know. I'm new to this. Um, don't ask me to fix your car, by the way. I will break it, okay? All my spare time and, and the beautiful time of some awesome guys here has been spent literally just fixing these broken things. And at every turn when the next thing broke, I literally was closer and closer to finding the nearest well and just jumping into it and just living there for the rest of my life. I was like, I don't want, I want to burn my car. I, I want to drive it into the Mesa and blow it up like Breaking Bad style. I want to just throw my dryer away. It's bad for your clothes anyway. I don't need a dryer. I was just ready to just give up and quit. And I was ready to just go scream into a pillow somewhere and just give up and be done. And in that moment when I rolled in Friday morning and my fluid's everywhere and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this car anymore. I'm just going to donate it to the nearest person to deal with. It was really easy and I was very tempted to rely and to be fixated my emotions. I, I was really tempted that because things were going the way I thought they should go, that really what I needed to rely on was anxiety or fear or frustration, or anger. And in that moment, as I step into my office, in the middle of these frustrations, I was reminded, and I, I believe Holy Spirit was prompting my heart, Nick, what do you run to? What do you run to? In more clear language, where is my source? Not sauce, okay, but where is my source? Where is the source where I find my peace? Where is the source of the purpose of my life? The list could go on. And this is important to ask because I really do believe this. Your source determines your satisfaction. See, the tension Jesus is drawing from, he speaks to this. Jesus references something that the disciples would have been aware of culturally. They would have been familiar with this kind of practice. Um, and it would have been normal for people to pray out in the open. Now, if you want to see that, you just drive down Central, and there's a whole lot of that going on. Um, but it would be normal for people to pray out in the open, to speak loudly. If you go to Israel to this day at the Wailing Wall, this is actually what they do. Prayer was a normal mode of communication, external open communication with God in first century Judaism. The context and the culture Jesus is speaking into. And see, I believe, as I mentioned in the beginning, secularism or, or the desire to remove religion from society has done a number on our mentality of how we view prayer. This is kind of weird to think about somebody yelling on a street corner and praying too much, wanting people to see them. That's not really like an issue people face nowadays. Like you're not in connect group going to your friends like, hey, what are you struggling with, with this week, bro? Bro, I just keep screaming on fourth and second, and I'm just like, I can't stop. I can't stop praying to God in front of everybody. It's so hard for me. That's not your struggle. And I believe that's a lot to do with secularism. And the goal of society secularizing or removing faith from the public is not to just stop somebody having faith. But I believe actually many secular scholars and many secular psychologists actually agree that religion's good, that religion produces hospitals and orphanages. But the bad part of religion and faith is that 
when it begins to make other people uncomfortable. And when it begins to intercede on other people's behalf in an uncomfortable way that people don't like, that's when things get weird. And we cannot even imagine people praying out loud today because of this. And the truth is, secularism isn't working to get rid of your faith. It's working to privatize your faith. It's working to make your faith confide in a nice little box that doesn't intrude on anybody else's boundaries and that can stay within your home. Anywhere else, it's not welcome. And so when we read this, we, we, we can almost get zealous. We can almost begin to feel a little bit frustrated. We can think people are trying to suppress us. We think that the right thing we should do is actually push back harder and do more in the face of this. And Jesus, he's not calling his disciples into more private faith. He's not calling his disciples to be less public about their faith. But what Jesus is calling his disciples away from, and the invitation he has for us tonight, is being aware that in prayer we must not seek immediate gratification. And in the life of faith, we must not seek immediate gratification. We can assume these hypocrites were praying these big, elaborate prayers, something similar to what Jesus shares in Luke 18 with the man at the front of the synagogue and the tax collector at the back of the synagogue. One stands in the front boasting of self-centered deeds, where the other stands at the back repentant and downtrodden. Jesus says, the one who was in the back, the brokenhearted man, the one who recognized the depths of his wrong, was justified. But be aware of where your satisfaction comes from when you pray. I believe many of us are disenfranchised with prayer and we're almost led away from a life of prayer because it doesn't really align with the immediate gratification we've been welcomed into in today's day and age. We're so used to getting everything when we want. There's supposedly Amazon's dropping off drone packages. I've never seen it happen. That'd be great. It'd probably blow up my house or something. But we're really used to this immediate gratification. Uber Eats, we don't have to talk to anybody, drop it at the door, leave a little note. Here's a $2 tip. You didn't leave a pepper minute in my bag. We, we're, we're used to taking ride shares or we're used to the form of communication where we don't have to really interact with people and deal with them because it takes too long. We get what we want and we want it now. We can dangerously shift around Jesus' prayer and what he outlines as correct prayer and prayer heart posture to look something like this. If we were really honest about times when we may pray, this is what we would pray, myself included. My genie in heaven, good is your name, as long as I say so based on the results you give me. My kingdom come, my will be done in heaven as it is on earth. If we were really honest by the way we lived our lives, by the way we pray, by the way we view God, it's based a lot on immediate gratification that because God doesn't give us what we want, when we want, how we want, what's the purpose of praying? What's the purpose of asking? He's not going to say yes anyway. I'm not going to get my way anyway. Jesus understands this. And Jesus understands how us as people, how temperamental we can be. That we can be so rooted in the now that we can't think the long term on his timing. He knows how easily self-centered Nick is. How easily Nick gets orientated around what I want. And that if we are not careful, we can become and grow into the kind of people who measure the goodness of God by the immediate gratification we expect. By the way we get what we want, 
we level that with God's goodness. Either verbally or non-verbally, we believe this at times. But Jesus, he's inviting us into a bigger picture that's being painted. That by prayer, in the Father's will, remembering that God is set apart, that God is above all things, that God is not tainted like humanity is, like circumstances are, that there's a much bigger narrative and picture happening. That my source of reprieve in this week of all these car issues, and for you, just name it in your life, of where you are facing difficulty, my source for me in this moment really came to terms when I decided to just leave my things in my office. I said, if I stay in here anymore, I'm going to punch holes in the wall, so I'm going to go on a walk where there's no walls, okay? So I went on this walk, and I just began to look around. It's this beautiful fall morning. There, there's trees around me. I'm stepping in grass. I, I smell the air. I realize, man, there, there's such a bigger thing going on than my stupid little Subaru issue. There, there's such a bigger thing than my dryer's kind of loud, and I have to fix it. And I, and I just felt prompted to start just thanking God. Thank you, Lord, for this life. Thank you that I'm upright walking right now. Thank you that I get to breathe right now. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my baby. Thank you for this life. How often would you, do we just take for granted the things God's given us, the things that we've already prayed about that he's answered because we're so focused on right now not getting what we want. And in that moment, I, I was awoken up to the bigger reality, the bigger thing going on, that not everything's about me. I don't know if you've heard this lately. Uh, th this is kind of news to me sometimes. Not everything's about me. For, for you and I, not everything's about you, my friend. That, that's a little harsh, and society wants to tell you different. Your teachers want to tell you different. Maybe your parents told you different, but not everything's about you. There, there's something bigger and more beautiful, a symphony of noise that God is orchestrating that he wants to invite us into play a part in. But when we are stuck in immediate gratification, we can begin to realize that our source determines our satisfaction. You don't have to be thrown around by the troubles of life. You don't have to be turned aside like me trying to surf just at the mercy of the waves and hopefully tomorrow you wake up and you're in a good mood if things go your way and the next week after that. Hopefully the balloons go up this year, a balloon fiesta, right? Like wind every year, okay? It's going to be a good balloon fiesta no matter what, no matter what I have to say about it. God's going to do his thing with the wind. But we can begin to have this mentality. You will short stunt or you will stunt the growth of your faith if immediate gratification is the source of your satisfaction. Let's continue reading by seeing what Jesus says in verse 6, accompanied by verse 11. When you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then verse 11 correlates perfectly with this, where he tells us to pray, Give us today our daily bread. Now, there, there's a really phenomenal movie that was released in 2019 uh, titled The Sound of Metal. Um, I'm not recommending you watch it. I'm just simply perspective observation of it. And the premise of this movie is fascinating. I've never seen a movie like this. But the premise of this movie is that a drummer for a metal band loses his hearing and is faced with the reality of his anger and certain addictions he's facing when he attends this rehabilitation center for deaf adults trying to integrate into their new life. It's super creative. 
And the movie follows this drummer who's battling his own demons, who's, who's facing the loss of his hearing, something he's relied on his whole life. And there's a key scene in the movie I want to show you tonight where the director of this camp who follows Jesus invites this young man to spend 15 minutes every morning in silence. He, 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 in the beginning of the movie, just invites him. He can tell how troubled and confused and distracted this guy is. And he just invites him to sit in silence. That his life has been so full of noise that he needs to be in the silence. And throughout the movie, he's unable to do it. It actually becomes quite a tragedy, and he returns to his old habits. And, and the director of this camp has a sobering conversation with him. And I want to show you a clip. It's about 50 seconds long, so just bear with me. But I want to show you this clip from this movie where he talks about this. Let's throw it up on the screen. I wonder... Uh all these mornings you've been sitting in my study, sitting. Have you had any moments of stillness? Because you're right, Reuben. The world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But for me, Those moments of stillness, that place, that's the kingdom of God. And that place will never abandon you. Now, this is a faith-based Pure Flix movie, but I believe truth is truth. And the truth of that reality resonates here. That the secret place of time with Jesus, despite circumstance, despite what's going on in the world, despite how things are going, despite what's happening, is available to you and I 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And will never abandon anyone who seeks him in that place. See, the idea of set aside time, privacy, in the quiet, it, it seems appealing. Culture at large and, and many religions and different thought pools have adopted this practice. Yet Jesus isn't calling his disciples into mindfulness or manifesting or whatever trendy thing is going on in Hollywood or other parts of the world. See, Jesus is calling his disciples to develop a life and a faith that is more orientated around the privacy of our lives rather than the publicity and the image that we portray in our lives. Now more than ever, and probably somebody talks about this on a daily basis, it seems we detest solitude and silence, two things Jesus did when praying. Very few times we see Jesus praying in massive crowds or really having conversations with the Father in the midst of being multitasked or being hurried or running to the next place. Jesus was always at the right place at the right time. He was never in a rush. Yet we seem infatuated with distraction and public image. We put everything in public nowadays. Y'all, I know too much about mutual friends' dogs' birthdays, all right? I did not even know that information. I know too much about people that I don't even, have never even met in my life. This stuff just lives rent-free in my head. I know people opening barbershops in Northern California right now. Why, do, why does that impact my life? It really has nothing to do with my life. But I know these things, and you could probably list out a million other useless facts about people you don't know. And I believe the root of it is this. We love the public image and the public life that we get to display to people. 
We love the way we get to dress. We love the way we get to portray ourselves. We love the vacations we take. We love the way we may be perceived by other people. Yet, I've discovered something in this life of mine. That I've been to a few funerals, and I've noticed something about funerals. That death brings to light people's private life. You can personalize it. Death brings to light your private life. When you die, which is going to happen, by the way, one of one chance except like one time 2,000 years ago, didn't happen. We are all going to inevitably die in this room at some point in our life. And there may be a funeral. Maybe you're like, I'm a free spirit. Cremate me and throw me in the ocean. Whatever it is, okay? Whatever you're going to do, all right? Doesn't matter, okay? Whatever you do with the funeral service that will be conducted for you, here's what I've noticed in every funeral that I've ever been to, officiated, attended, whatever it may be. The reality is this. You will not be remembered for the stuff you posted about, the cool items you owned, how well you may or may not have dressed, how much game or is you had or didn't have, how many times you traveled in your life, or how many sexual encounters you got to or didn't get to experience. And the reality that you won't be remembered for those things is due to one simple reason. Because none of those things add lasting value to your life. You will be remembered for how you treated people and who people really knew you to be. Something happens when death occurs in a family or whatever, you know, um, the whole honor system, it just goes out the door, okay? I don't know if this is an Albuquerque thing, but people die, and like, their whole life, they're remembered for, like, oh, yeah, he was, like, a man of God. And, yeah, he was praying every morning, and he would have a Coca-Cola with his Bible study. Then the person passes away, and they're like, man, he didn't come to any of my soccer games. I'm going to talk about that in the eulogy. And people, as a pastor, you have to be like, okay, maybe I'll take the mic at that point. Uh, people at funerals get real honest, no one cares to spare the private things of someone's life. Everybody's a snitch at the funeral, okay? I just got to say it, all right? Everybody's going to be t dumping all your information to other people and remembering you for who you really were. The real you will be revealed. And be like, I'll be in the ocean with my cremation in heaven with Jesus. It doesn't matter. Maybe. But I, I use this to prompt you to think in a way tonight that if you were to be very honest with yourself tonight and maybe put yourself in the seat at your own funeral, I know it's dark, but it's going to happen, y'all. Just do it, okay? Imagine what would really be said about you. Imagine what would be said about you by the people who attend this funeral, the people closest to you. I'm not talking about some person you DM'd 15 years ago showing up and be like, hey, we were so close. It's like, who are you? Why are you here, right? What would be said about you by the people that know you best? Jesus petitions and pleads with his followers that who they are in private is where they are developed. Who they are in the privacy, corner parts of their life, where there's no gram, there's nobody paying attention, there's nobody noticing. And those portions of a life is where people are developed. And the reason is this. When you pray in private, Spend time in conversation with God, listening to him, maybe even just sitting still, free from distraction, even for five or ten minutes. You're spending intentional time with the person who knows you best, Jesus, the one who made you. And in turn, you are learning more of who you were made to be because you're learning from the person who made you. 
And more importantly, often in the silence, more so than when we're blabbing and talking about all these things that he likes to hear us talk about, he asks and pleads with us to ask and seek and knock. But often in the silence, seeing more of who Jesus is, which I hope is who you want to be more like. At the end of the day, the people we look up to, the celebrities we may admire, the influencers that we don't know how they make all that money, we have no idea, the different people we pay attention to, at the end of the day, the people we dream and to aspire to be more like, they're flawed. They don't know us truly. But to be more like Jesus and his perfection and knowing us is beautiful. The way you grow deeper and more alike to someone else is by intentional time spent with them. Try to get in a dating relationship and never spend time together, okay? Some people call that long distance. Hey, okay. But uh, anyway, try to. It's not going to work. Try to be friends with somebody tonight, okay? Meet them. Okay, I'm giving you context. Say, hey, I want to be your friend. Don't talk to them for another year. See if they're still your friend next year, okay? See if they even show up here, right? It'll be really awkward and strange for you. See, the way we become more like Jesus is growing a relationship to him by spending time with him. Think of the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's in the kitchen. She probably is making amazing food, okay? Everyone bashes Martha. She's just trying to cook some hummus, okay? Give the girl a break, right? Mary, on the other hand, she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. What were they talking about? We don't know. But he, she was seeking his face. This is what prayer is, sitting at the feet of Jesus, seeking his face. And he's not looking down at you from up in heaven, ready to throw a lightning bolt because he didn't speak in the King James original language in Latin, okay? But, but he's sitting with you as well. But the greatest enemy to this relationship in this moment is modern distraction. To quote, to quote Ronald Rollheiser, theologian, he says this, we are distracting ourselves into oblivion. Okay, look up the definition of oblivion. It's not good, all right? But this rings true that as people, we're consuming more and doing more, and we're so distracted by the information we know we're not returning to the simplicity of the way of Jesus. Remind yourself of this. Death brings to light your private life. If you don't like what that means tonight, if you shudder at that reality, it's time to spend less time in publicity and portraying an image you think people want to see and more in the privacy of time with Jesus, developing and looking more like him. Put the phone away. Set aside 15 minutes and just listen. Seek his face. Talk to him honestly. Don't be wrapped up in these superficial worries, my friends. This is why Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. He wants you in the now. Worry rests in tomorrow. Regret rests in the day before. But in the now, today, our daily bread. Lord, I'm praying right now. Lord, give me enough transmission, fluid fuel to get me home tonight, okay? Just give me this daily bread, Lord. Seriously, focus on today and being present. Because reality is, we're not promised the next 10 minutes. Okay, nothing's going to happen. Okay, you're like, what is this? This is a suicide cult. No, it's not. Okay, but we aren't. We aren't. We are not promised the next 15, 20, 30 minutes, the next year, the next day. So what are we being remembered by? Well, you may ask, well, what do I say in this time with Jesus? What do I do? What, what, what does this compose of? Well, I'm glad you asked, hypothetically. Jesus answers that question in verses 7 through 9. Let's keep reading. He says this, and when you pray, 
do not keep on babbling like pagans or hypocrites or Gentiles, some translations may say, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This falls right in line with his words at the end of verses 12 to 13, so we'll jump there. It says this in verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I believe a lot of the reason we're in a distraction crisis and not able to develop the actual meaningful parts of our lives and faith to Jesus is that we just have information overload. I know things about a person's barbershop across the country. I know too much stuff. And in this content overload that our culture is consumed by, we can begin to focus and almost idolize information that we realize and may think, oh, if I just had more information, if I just knew better, this thing wouldn't have happened to me. And at any point we feel inadequate, at any point in our life, any named thing, we fail in temptation, when we don't listen to discernment, when, when whatever it is, when life doesn't happen because we don't do the right thing, we tend to think, well, I just need more content. Well, I just need more church. I need more community. I need more Bible. I need more knowledge. And all those things are good, but here's the issue in dwelling on our inadequacies and meeting those inadequacies with just more information, just more things. Here's the issue. Everywhere you go, there you are. It doesn't matter how much you know about whatever you need to know or how much a person's faith has, is developed and intense in their life. You are still stuck with yourself at the end of the day. You are who you are. You cannot bond yourself and rely on other people's experiences, other people's information, other people's understanding. That you have to develop in your own life something else. The long term is that despite knowing or having information, just because we have information, it does not directly translate into wisdom. Okay? You heard of this word wisdom, right? I don't know where it is anymore, but it, it's real. See, see, wisdom is, is beyond simply knowing the information. The information person is like the actually guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, actually, and then it happened in 1945 and 1943. Like, that's not wisdom, okay? That's just being a know-it-all, right? Wisdom is a deeper sense than that. Wisdom is something that I really do believe only comes from the Lord. And I believe wisdom can be equated with deeper similarity to the character of God. And here's where we conclude tonight. We need less content and we need more character. We need less content and we need more character. And by character, I mean we need more of the character of God in our lives. We need more of the reality of who God is and the attributes Jesus carried in our own life. We don't need to just necessarily know more. Nothing wrong with knowing things. But we need to develop these inner parts of our life. And I want to pose you with this. What you fill your time with, this is the question. What you fill your time with, day in, day out, from the most benign, random things you do throughout your day to the most intensified, deliberate actions you take, does it draw you closer to the character of God, to looking more like the person of Jesus, or does it pull you away? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 to 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and humble in heart. Listen to those words, learn from me. Learn from me. Jesus doesn't just say, this is like a cool thing I do and I offer to you, you want some of it? No, he says, learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the characteristics he describes. Gentle, humble, rested, and lightly burdened. He doesn't say it's not a burden. He says it's a burden, something to carry, but it's not heavy. It's a light burden. What you do, what you fill your time with, does it push you closer to those attributes? Or does it draw you closer to the opposite of those things? Anxious, prideful, exhausted, and heavily weighed down. Think on these last words that Jesus invites us to pray when we pray. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to ask you tonight, are you living in a life of God's forgiveness? This is something he offers to you. Or are you living in the old rags of your shame, of your past? Are we holding on to bitterness? Or are we allowing God to be the final judge about situations we haven't let go of yet? Are we fighting temptation? Are, are we desiring to be led away from temptation? Or are we falling victim time and time again to patterns we recognize and can predict? Are we willing to be delivered from evil? Or are we willingly returning to it? These are the things I pose to you tonight, my friends. And no one can assess that but you and your relationship to the Lord. And so in closing tonight, I just want to invite you into this. You don't have to drown. You, you don't have to stay in the shame of tomorrow or of yesterday or the day before. You, you don't have to lead a life where anxiety controls every action. You don't have to be pulled around and tethered by these emotions that flip-flop every single day. But that you and I, we have an invitation from Jesus through, through relationship to him, getting to know him. From the point of salvation, that beautiful day, to when we die, that little thing in between called life, Jesus invites us into more. And the question tonight is, are you and I willing to step into what is more? Are we or are we living in what is old? Closing, let me pray for us. Let's just go before the Lord and feel led to pray as uh, pray as you feel led. If you need to stand at this time, if you need to go back to the back of the room, if you need to bow your head, if you need to look to heaven, go bowing the head, closing the eyes thing is like modern culture. It's not really how Jesus prayed. But anyway, as we as we just take this moment, I just want to go before the Lord on our behalf to just reveal those little things in our life. Because if He reveals it, it's conviction. If, if other people do, it can feel like shame. And so I'm just going to invite him into this moment. Father, I pray right now that you may do the work that you have started long ago in our hearts. That, Father, long before we knew of you, you were aware of us. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you for the reality that is the new life. Thank you for your invitation to conversate and spend time with you. Lord, I pray right now that if any of us feel untethered to you, 
if any of us have been walking in rebellion, that we may turn aside to you now, that we may seek your face and like Mary, sit at your feet. Lord, help us, encourage us, put people in our life to show us the right way so that we don't need to return to public image and shallow things, Father. Convict us tonight, Father. But also lend your hand of comfort, we plea with you, Lord. Speak to us now. And if not, Father, we just ask that we may just have ears to listen. Help us to limit distraction. Help us to step away and to take this moment to just be in a secret place with you, Lord. To not have eyes on us, to not care about our friends think or what others think, but to just be okay with being, having you as our satisfaction. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll take this time. They're going to worship. They're going to lead us in a song. But I invite you, seek out the secret place. Let's pray.